Uh, I have a friend. I, I don't have him anymore. He was a friend. Um, we went to college together. I've lost touch with him since. I'm waiting for somebody to come up and tell me they know him. His name is Ray Romatelli. Joan is here and it's for the first time right now, and she's remembering Ray. Ray was, maybe you could guess this by his name, but Ray was kind of a, a short, really hairy Italian guy um, <laughs> that I went to college with. And we've lost touch, but to this day, Ray is in my mind, like if you say, tell me the most up person you ever met, that was Ray. It didn't matter what the circumstances are, like you're going to have a tailgate party and it was it turned out to be a day like today, Ray somehow would get jazzed about the rain. This is going to be awesome, you know? And, you're like, dude, this is going to be terrible. Ah, oh, it's going to be great. Uh, you go to any party, you name it, Ray was the life of the party. He was the first guy to dance, the first guy to start some silly chant he'd have the crowd doing. It was always Ray. We'd get, he was an accounting major, and I was an economics major. You'd get, so we had some classes together. You get weighed down by a project, you know? Somehow, Ray would say, hey, you know, put finals would be coming up. He'd go, guys, study party at my house this Tuesday night, Right? And he actually got me there jazzed to study. Now, when I got there, it wasn't that much fun. But he had me believing it was going to be fantastic. And he loved it. It didn't matter. He was always pumped up. He was the life of the party. And here's what confused me. is You go to these parties, Ray never drank an ounce of anything. Never did a drug, never did anything. He was always the life of the party. And he wasn't fueled by anything. He was just wired that way. Now, when you're in college, you can't quite figure that out. He was always having fun. He was so unusual, I tried to get to the bottom of it. And I said to him, Ray, why, why are you like this? Like, why are you so up? Is it your faith or you're a Christ follower? No. You know, were you damaged as a kid and you're trying to overcome something by being the life of the party? Is that it? No. He didn't have an answer. It was just his, his default emotion. He was pumped up. It was his baseline personality. He was joyful. He was happy. It drove me crazy. Now, we... You might not know guys like Ray, but we all know people on the other side of that spectrum, right? Right? No matter how blessed or fortunate they are, they always somehow can see the glass half full. They're always cynical. They're always questioning motives or, or always frustrated, sad, angry, judgmental. It's the default emotion. It's just where they are spiritually. It's who they are at deep levels. Now, here's what I'd encourage you to do is maybe do a little self-introspection about what your own default emotion is. But more importantly, what I want you to discover this morning is God's baseline emotion towards you. What is God's default emotion? Because we're operating together in these weeks under the premise that what we think about God, what comes to our mind when we reflect on God, is perhaps the most important thing there is about us. Because we have an unusual propensity to move towards whatever it is that our mental image of God is. And if that's true, then when you think about God, what, is, what do you think is his baseline emotion? And why does it matter? In order to do this, we're going to go back to the same verse we've been looking at in these weeks um, that all of our small, small groups are studying from Exodus chapter 34. When God reveals to Moses that he has a name, he, he, it's God's big self-revelation moment. It is the most repeated verse by all of the other biblical authors. I'll show you that. It's that deep. It's that profound. 
And so if you're going to change at deep levels, you have to come to an understanding of this truth. This is why I've asked you to memorize it. This is why we made all of you these memorization cards a few weeks ago. You can pick one up at the engagement center if you don't have one. I'm asking you to commit this to memory. You're going to see this morning why it's so important you have this committed to memory. Because it will change the way you live your life. I'm convinced of it after studying it this week more than ever. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this together um, again. Exodus chapter 34, uh, the most repeated verse in all of Scripture, God's self-revelation moment. I'm trying to get it into your heads. Let's read it together. You ready? You ready? All right. Ready. Are we? Let's go. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, proclaiming his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Uh, so here's what we've discovered over these last few weeks. And hopefully you're in a small group wrestling through this material. The books are available for purchase out at the Engagement Center. If you're not, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. It's a giant commentary on Exodus chapter 34. We've discovered that God has a name and it's not God. God just was, you know, that, that's a, just a translation of the word, you know, essentially deity. He has a name and it was Yahweh. He gave his name. He wanted us to call him Yahweh through all generations. But we, out of fear, out of a, maybe a preferred, more distant relationship, uh, out, of, out of a worry about offending God because we used his name in vain, the translators took, Yahweh refers to himself in the Bible over and over as Yahweh. We took it out and just replaced it with the name the Lord. But that's not what, what, what Yahweh wanted to be called. His name had a meaning. He wanted you to know it for all generations. It meant what I am, I will always be. And what is he? Well, he's those things we just read. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so over these last few weeks, we've discovered why it matters that he has a name, what it means for how we interact with him, how we seek him and pray to him. And then, as we've been going through piece by piece this verse, last week we looked at why Yahweh repeated his name twice in this verse. Yahweh God, Yahweh God. One of the reasons we settle on was that it was partially due to the fact that there were other gods out there that didn't go by the name Yahweh. Other little G gods competing for your heart and your affection. That's why Yahweh says he's a jealous God. And so this morning, we're going to look at the next part. We're going to unpack this very famous verse week over week. Today, we're going to look at the part that says he is the compassionate and gracious God. Now, Last week we had kind of a cra some crazy stuff that we talked about, right? Uh, I understand if you walked out of here last week and you said, that guy is whacked. Um, because we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about stuff in the heavenlies, things that we, you know, that there's, there's a whole spiritual realm that we don't really see. And so Yahweh shares a little bit about that. We talked about these other evil and malevolent small g gods that are out there. And I couldn't help, and some of you also reflect on it because you emailed me. I couldn't help but think about this when I woke up to the Las Vegas shooting on Monday. Right? 
Because a lot of times, prior, maybe prior to last week, you look at that and go, how can I believe in a God that would allow stuff like this to exist? Now you start to understand, no, 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 the God that I worship is not the God that has anything to do with that. That's a different God that did that. These other spiritual beings out there, real or simply the invention of man, they, to this day, they have a default emotion towards you. From the dawn of time to almost every major religion of this day, and now, here's, here's the real shame of this. This gets incorporated into Christianity. There's an underlying assumption that whoever God is, whoever, whoever they are, whoever he is or they are, they have a default emotion towards us, and it's this, they're ticked. These divine beings are anything but nice. You read any ancient text about God, that is what they presume his default emotion is towards you. They're finicky. The gods are capricious. They're ready to fly off the handle at the slightest infraction. And so what do you do to keep them happy? Uh, I need the sun to come out. I need the rains to come. Uh, What do I do to keep God on my side? Well, you have to make sacrifices to keep him off your back. Or maybe to bring him over to your corner. If you read the history of man, you'll see how this started. It started off first with a bird or a goat. But then, you, you know, yeah, the gods, they don't seem happy, so, so you ratchet it up to a bull. And through antiquity, what you'll see is eventually it makes its way all the way up to a child. Maybe even your firstborn. This is all over the place. You can Google this when you get home. You'll see it in Central America, South America, all over um, the Middle East. One of these gods, you see him referenced in, in the Bible a lot, was the god Moloch, or Moloch, the, the Canaanite god. Moloch, just like the rest of the, the little G gods, he was an angry god. And so for Moloch, if you were a worshiper of Moloch, your crops when you sacrifice your crops, they weren't enough for Malak. He wanted more. And so, so often you would begin to cut yourself and, and bleed onto an altar of Malak, but, but that wasn't enough. And so what would you have to do to please him? Well, what's the most important thing he must be demanding from me? Well, through, through antiquity, the answer always wound up, often wound up being, he wants my kid because he's angry and I have to do something to appease him. And so for the gods Moloch and Baal, for the goddesses Tanit and Anat, these gods, their default emotion towards man was anger, and they wanted to be appeased. They needed to be appeased. Now, to understand Yahweh, then, while God shows up and says, no, no, my name is Yahweh, I'm not like these other gods, you have to understand the culture into which Yahweh shows up. The world of angry gods who related to man on a transactional basis. We do this in Christianity all the time. We default to this. A transactional basis of you be good and I'll bless you. You give me what I want. You give me your stuff. You give me your money, your time. You crawl up and down the steps enough times. You say this chant enough times and then I'll give you what you want. But you screw up and I will fry you. Anybody ever get introduced to that God? Because if you're honest, this is still the way of religion today. It teaches us uh, about God that way. We teach our kids oftentimes. We use God to try to keep them in line, right? 
We tell them that you need to react to God transactionally. That if you're, if you're a good boy, God will bless you. And if you're a bad boy, God will curse you. This is why Yahweh then and Yahweh today is still revolutionary. If you would understand them, it would change your life. There's a spooky, very unpleasant story that's told in the first book of the Bible, a book called Genesis. It's a story about a man named Abraham and his son Isaac. In the story, God has not yet revealed who he is. He's not said his name yet, and he's not said his character. This God, this Dios, he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, quote, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Year was 1987. I'm a recent new believer in Jesus Christ, and I get a new Bible. And what do you do with a new Bible? I didn't know where to start, so I started on page one, right? It seemed to make sense, and I'm, I started in Genesis. And so I'm starting to read along in Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created, okay, this is kind of good. I got this. I've heard this before. And then this story comes pretty quick. And I remember thinking to myself, wait, what? This doesn't sound like any kind of God that I'm really all that interested in. This sounds like the wrong God. I think somebody, this must be a bad translation, Right? I don't understand how this story, where it would come from. It certainly doesn't sound like Jesus that I had been told about. But that's because I was reading the story through, through 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian history that has a fuller understanding of Yahweh. See, when the ancients read this story, when Abraham heard God say this to him, do you know what Abraham said when God said, sacrifice your son to me? Of course. Of course you want me to sacrifice my son to you. You want me to keep you happy. You're God and that's what all the gods want. It's a transaction. Abraham knew. Everybody else's God was just like this. I do what you say. I give you what you want and you give me what I want. That's how we maintain peace. It actually just hits me. This is what we try to do in our marriages too, right? Just make them a mess. We bring the same relationship to God. It's crazy. Abraham doesn't even blink an eye because this is the only kind of God that anybody has ever known. But if you know the story, and you have to understand how revolutionary this was then and even now, Abraham obeys and he goes up to the mountain and he puts Isaac on the altar and just when it comes time to do what every other God has done and commanded, Yahweh God says, Stop. The scripture says Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. This God, this Yahweh God, this God by go, that goes by the name Yahweh, he's different than all of the other gods. We don't need to come up to him. He comes down to us. He condescends. He provides the ram. He brings the sacrifice. Yahweh, we don't need to sacrifice to appease Yahweh. Yahweh sacrifices in order to get in relationship with us. Of course, it's just such a beautiful precursor to what Yahweh would do with Jesus. But this Yahweh... Do you, do you understand how different this is? Yahweh, church, this is so, if you get this, this will change your life. Yahweh does not want to interact transactionally with you 
and his default emotion towards you is not anger or bitterness or disappointment or discouragement or resentment. That is not his baseline emotion towards you. This God, he's not like Artemis or Amun-Ra, who we talked about last week, or Marduk. He tells you his name. He goes, no, my name is Yahweh, as if he's trying to coax us into a relationship. Because apparently he wants to be known, and he wants to know you. And then he tells us what he's like. And the first thing you learn about Yahweh when he describes himself is this. He says, I'm compassionate and gracious. Comer points out in the Hebrew scriptures that order matters. It was a clue as to what was most important. And the fact that compassionate and gracious is at the top of the list means that it's the dominant characteristic about who, Yahweh. It's the most important thing there is. Do you know the most important thing God wanted you to know about him was that he's compassionate and gracious? In the original Hebrew, that, that word that's translated compassionate is rahum. It's, it's usually translated merciful. It's fascinating. It's from a root word meaning female womb. The idea is that the, the, the idea it's trying to convey is that Yahweh feels towards you the feeling a mother has towards an infant child. The passion and protection and nurturing nature that a mother would have for a newborn you see Rahum used in, in the story of, of two women that were fighting over a child before King Solomon. Do you know this story? It's a crazy story. Solomon, he's asking God for wisdom. He wants to be wise. And so as he's praying this, two women come before him. And, and they're both claiming to be the mothers of this one child. If you know the story, they, they, I think there were two prostitutes and they each had a baby and one fell asleep on the baby and it died. And so she snuck over and took the other baby and so they both come before Solomon. And there's no DNA test to, to come up with whose baby this is. So here's Solomon's wise plan. Here's the wisdom that God gave him from 1 Kings chapter 3. The king, Solomon said, this one says my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. And so they brought a sword for the king and he gave them an order. Cut the living child in two and give one half to one and the other half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. And if that makes the hair on your neck stand up a little bit, what you need to know there, those words deeply moved out of love, that intense, visceral, motherly love, that's the word compassion. That's Rahum there. That is what God feels towards you. We, we studied the Psalms this summer. I told you my favorite Psalm is Psalm 103. Check this out in verse 8 of Psalm 103. Remember, I told you, if you get this verse, you get so much of the scripture. This is the verse that all the other biblical authors go back to. Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's Exodus 34, right? But then the psalmist goes on. As a father has, here comes the word, Rahum. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is Yahweh. God has Rahum on you. 
Now, if you've ever had children or you grew up in any kind of a functional household, and I know all of you didn't, but if you did or if you have kids, please understand the power of what Yahweh is saying about you and his heart for you. Yahweh, you got to get this at deep levels, his default emotion towards you, his baseline is rahum, compassion. You know he's not angry at you. And then there's this second word. He says, I'm gracious, which in, in Hebrew is hanun, which rhymes. Rahum is a feeling word. Hanun is an action word. It means that not only does God have these strong maternal, paternal emotions towards you, these emotions then will drive him to action on your behalf. It means to show favor. It's something you do. It has with it the idea of help. To hanun somebody is to help them out in a time of need. My love for my kids forces me, it compels me to act on their behalf. I love you all, but do something against my kids. You will meet a different Pastor John. It compels me to action. I told you last year, Caroline and I were out in the water and we got caught up a little bit in a rift tide, right? When... when Caroline got caught up. Who's the first person she looks for? Dad. Why? Because she knows my feelings for her will compel me to act on her behalf. I'm not going to swim back to shore. I'm coming for you. This is Yahweh. You keep trying to, we keep trying to relate to him like it's about a transaction. He doesn't act on your behalf because you gave him something or you stopped smoking and stopped cursing. You're missing it. Any more than I decided to swim out to Caroline because she, you know, got straight A's. He acts on your your behalf because he's driven by his nature. It's who he is. It's what he does. Check it out, Psalm 86. Does this sound familiar? But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and and faithfulness. Exodus 34. But then the psalmist goes on. Turn to me and be, here's the word, gracious to me. Give me your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. It's a prayer about God's grace for Hanun, for God to rescue and save Israel out of danger to the God who responds. And so Comer points out, what do we have? We have a Yahweh, God. He's like a father or even a mother, and we're like his children. And like a parent, God comes to the rescue when his kids need help. And when you link and fuse these words together, they show us what Yahweh is like. He's compassionate and gracious, which means when you come before God in morning prayer or in worship or at church on your afternoon run, in the middle of a crisis in your house or at work, when you do, you come before a God of compassion who feels, who cares about you, a God who out of that feeling for you, he wants to act, he wants to, he will do something about your situation. It's not a transaction. It's about Yahweh and who he is. Now, I love this. I mean, who wouldn't love this? Oh, Yahweh's the best. 
right? Like, he's better than I thought. He's not mad at me. He's not holding out on me based on my behavior. As a father, I have compassion on his children. Yahweh has it on me. As a father acts on behalf of his child, my father will act on my behalf. I love it until I come to an even deeper understanding of it, which really kind of makes this problematic. Who does Yahweh have compassion on and act for? Me. Me only. See, Yahweh's compassion and grace can be a real bummer. Remember when Jonah was sent to the Ninevites? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. The Ninevites are like the worst people on earth, right? And what does Yahweh do? He has compassion on them. And Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew you were going to have compassion on them. God is not just compassionate and gracious to us and to people we like and agree with. He doesn't just like Republicans or Democrats. He doesn't just like straight people or gay people. He doesn't just like white people or black people. Understand this. God is gracious and compassionate to everybody. It's his character. He's gracious and compassionate to my kids, but also to my ex who left me. He's gracious and compassionate to my mom and dad and to the drunk driver that hit him last week. We love God being compassionate and gracious, but what about when God shows up and shows mercy to people who hurt us or stomped on us or gossiped behind our neck, our back, or, or lied about us to the boss or betrayed us or divorced us or abandoned us? How do you like Yahweh now? Comer writes, I love it. That's the problem with Yahweh. You just can't trust him to keep back blessing from people who don't deserve it. He goes around blessing all sorts of unsavory characters. People who aren't religious or spiritual or even good because he's compassionate and gracious to everybody. Most of us just want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else. That's how I'd like it to work. But it doesn't work like that. He's different. He's Yahweh. He shows mercy to all. And so Jesus shows up. And he claims to be the embodiment of this Yahweh. Here's how he tried to explain it, because it's really hard to explain. We're, we really don't like this when it applies to others. But Jesus put it this way. He said, he, meaning his father, God, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And in an agriculturally um, reliant economy, Jesus said, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Now, understand, and we'll get to this in the coming weeks, right? Yahweh is also just. Sin matters, and Yahweh does get angry because he is a person. He does have personhood and emotion. We'll talk about that later. But for now, you need to understand this. Yahweh's baseline emotion towards you is mercy and grace. And so Jesus comes and he tells a lot of stories which really start to tick people off. You understand how he winds up on a cross. Like, those who curse you, yeah, you should bless them. It's hard to understand because you and I have been taught for so long, even today, that God is transactional. And so, because whatever our view of God is, we tend to move towards it. If your view of God is that his love for you is transactional, 
you behave, you perform, you get love, what, how do you start to love people? They behave, they perform, I love. You don't behave, you don't perform, I withdraw. You feel that? So Jesus shows up and he says, this is deep in you guys. It's really deep. And so he, he's, trying to, he's trying to tell stories to help break its hold on us, to, to, let, to change this understanding of Yahweh, who he is, and who we are to him because of who he is, what his baseline emotion towards us is and what it means. And so Jesus tells what becomes maybe his most famous story, but one I'm going to ask you to see differently this morning because if you will get it differently, you will, you will, it will change how you live your marriage, your home life, your job. You know the story is the story of the prodigal son. Story about a guy, he's got two sons, and the one son says to the father, Father, give me, your, give me my share of the inheritance. Which in a first century Jewish culture was about the most offensive and embarrassing thing you could do to your father. He was going to have to liquidate his estate. Everybody would know. They'd see the disrespect the son had for him. It was essentially publicly wishing him dead. Now, ch check this out, church. Enter the story. Don't just read the story. Enter the story. Essentially, what the son was saying to the father, and the father in this story is the God character, okay? Essentially, the son was saying to the father, I'm not really interested in you, dad. I'm just really interested in your stuff. Does anybody know anyone that would possibly relate to God that way? And so this is a pretty shocking and offensive story in, in the culture with, in which it was told. You know the story, most of you. The son, younger son goes on his way, you know, he spends it all, wine, women, song, all the rest. He crashes, hits rock bottom, winds up in a pigsty, right? And he realizes, right, at just a rock bottom, man, uh, I'd be better off just as one of my dad's hired servants. And so he comes up with, with a plan, and on a way back to his dad's house, he starts rehearsing what his speech to his father is going to be when he gets there. And part of the speech is this, and, and you see it over and over in the story. Part of the speech is this, quote, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he starts to tell himself his own story. I'm not worthy to be called his son. I can't believe what I've done, I've done to him. I embarrassed him in front of everybody. I took all of his stuff. I broke every commandment, everything that was near and dear to him. I went against him. I spent it all on, on drugs and booze and women. I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not worthy to be a son. He convinces himself based on his past and his behavior. He did the worst thing a young Jewish boy could do. He's convinced of his own story, and his story is this. I'm not worthy to be called his son. Now maybe you've related to God that way. I have. You know when you do it again, and you swore you weren't going to do it again, and you did it again anyway? And you come before him and you relate to God on this transactional basis. I didn't do right, therefore you withhold love for me. Where are you? You're mad at me. I better hide. See, you, you have a story. I don't know what your story is. But I also know you have an accuser that tells you your story. I don't know what it is. But you walk around and you, you hear things in your head. You're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, talented enough. 
You haven't done enough. You haven't given enough. Oh, well, so-and-so is better. They've done more for God than I. God loves them because they've done more. They're more moral than me. Their kids, oh, their kids are, are, are Christians. My kids have walked away from God. God must love them more. I'm a failure. See, we tell ourselves a story about our, our unworthiness all the time. Or, 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 maybe even worse, we tell ourselves some kind of a bloated ego story about how good or awesome we really are. And so, if you know the story of the son, I'm not worthy to be a son, I'm not worthy to be a son, he gets close to the house. Here's what the scripture said. But while he was still a long way away off, his father saw him and was, read the next three words with me, filled with compassion. Yahweh, the God who is compassionate and gracious, filled with compassion. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the father said to the servants, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're going to have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so the party starts. And the father puts on a robe, which was a sign in the first century of sonship. Here's why. Check this out. Are you ready? Because the father has a different story about his son. The father has a different narrative in his mind about who the son is. In the father's, father's mind, this is my boy. And so now, here, think about this. Put yourself in the son's position because, church, you are in the son's position. The son, just like you, has a choice to make. Am I going to trust my own narrative about myself, my worth, and how my father relates to me, or do I trust what my father says about himself and what it means about me? Because he has to decide, you have to decide, he has to decide how he's going to live now because what he believes about his father and where he stands with him will impact if he spends the rest of his life like a son and a king or if he's going to trust his own narrative about himself and his God and spend the rest of his life living like a servant. You getting me on this? And so now the older son, he sees this and he's hacked off. I mean, who wouldn't be? He spent his whole life working for his dad. He, he earned everything he's got. And you know what? He's got nothing. And so he comes to the father. And the scripture says the older brother became angry. He refused to go to the party. His father, again, the father goes out. And the father pleads with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. See, he makes his case. He goes, I've been here the whole time. I don't understand. I did all this stuff for you. Do you hear the story he tells himself about himself? Do you hear the story, he says, the story he's telling himself about God? The younger son's story was that I'm no longer worthy of being your son, but the older son, he told himself that I'm worthy of being your son because of all I've done for you. I played by all the rules. I worked hard. I did it right. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. You know? I was a one-woman kind of guy. I went to church. 
I gave up all this stuff. I was good. I deserve something. That's his story. His story is I'm worthy because of all I've done. And so then the father says, I-, I need to change your story. And he pulls him over and he goes, my son, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. Because the father's version of the story is all that you did, you didn't, none of that earned you being my son. You had it the whole time. You, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. If you think about this, Jesus could have put any words on the lips of the father here. The words he chose to put on the lips of the father were this, and hear them. You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Each son had his own version, but the father confronts each son with his own story, a story of compassion and grace. This is not traditional spirituality. It's not transactional spirituality. Yahweh is not angry. You don't have to earn compassion and grace. That is who he is. Your relationship is not based on if you've done enough. It's not based on you. In a sense, may I say, get over yourself. Your story, your relationship is based on him. What Jesus is doing in the story is telling a story not about transactional spirituality, but about trust in Yahweh. So the question is, can you trust what he said about himself? Or do you just want to keep trying to react to him transactionally and hoping it's going to be good enough? This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not an announcement about all the terrible things about you. It's the good news about who God is and what that makes you. That's why it's good news. Now, we have sin issues. There's no doubt we're going to deal with them. We we mess up. This is a major issue. You have to leave your old story. You can't cling to your old story because when you trust the old story about God and you, it leads you into all kinds of bad places. If you believe at your deepest levels you're unworthy, unlovely, that you've fallen short, that God is angry, you're going to live your life like a servant instead of a king. You were born to be a king. If you believe that the world is just this cold, angry, Darwinian jungle ruled by some uncaring, far-off deity where only the strong survive, you're going to spend your life... This is why it matters what you think about God. If you think that you will spend your life constantly in search of validation, constantly sleeping with others, constantly hurting others, constantly trying to crave something for yourself because there's no other meaning, there's no other significance, you'll become mean and angry and tough and bitter doing everything you can just to get ahead. What you think about God at your deepest levels determines how you will act and how you will live. If you think he's compassionate and gracious and you know that you're a son and daughter, it will determine how you live. We looked at Ephesians, right? Remember Ephesians last year? Six chapters. Long before Paul gets to how you should live, he spends half of the book telling you who you are because who you are changes how you live. 
Funny way to end this, but I came across it this weekend. It's just so poignant. Lion King. There's such depth in that movie. Like, I was watching it last night with the kids, and I'm just, like, sitting there with, uh, in my mind going, i got to write all this stuff down. It was that good. But there's this one point in the movie. If you know the story, Simba, who is the, the baby lion cub, his father was uh, Mufasa. And Mufasa's kind of the god character in the story, okay? And so Mufasa raises Simba up, and uh, Mufasa's killed out of envy and bitterness by, by the uncle, by Mufasa's brother. But Mufasa's brother tells Simba it was his fault. And so Simba starts to live in relationship to Mufasa the way you and I often start to live in relationship to God, which is, I've messed up, I need to go away. I've messed up, I'm no longer a king, I'm no longer worthy of being your son, Right? This is essentially, this is essentially the same story. No longer being your son, I'm going to go live like a servant in a faraway land and not like the son that, that, that I was brought up to be. This is so good. And so, uh, so he grows up, Simba, and he's out in this distant land. And this kind of prophet orangutan comes to him and... Uh, and says to him, ah, it's a stretch, but anyway, the, the prophet orangutan comes to him and says to him, you don't know who you are. And he goes, what do you mean? I don't know who I am. I know who I am. He goes, no, 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 you don't know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. Pick it up there. You know my father? Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope. Wrong again! <laughs> He's alive! And I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki. He knows the way. Come on! Don't dog me! Hurry up! Hey, whoa, wait, wait! Come on! Come on! Would you slow down? That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. Go back. I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son. 
and the one true king. Remember who you are. No, please, don't leave me. Remember. Father. Remember. The weather, very peculiar, don't you think? Yeah, looks like the winds are changing. Ah, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow, jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter, it's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. Ah! You see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm gonna take your stick. No, 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 no! Not your stick! Hey! Where are you going? I'm going back! Good! You've forgotten who you are, and so you've forgotten me. You've got to understand who Yahweh is. He's compassionate and gracious, and he lives in you. Why does that story resonate? Because we all know at one level or another, we live out of step with who we are and who he is. You were made for something so much more than settling for these lesser gods. We've got to stop serving them. You are sons and daughters of Yahweh. That is such good news. He lives in you. Remember who he is. Remember who you are. Ben, come up here. Don't live the old story out about him. He's not ticked. Don't live the old narrative out about who you are. It will always lead you to live wrong. The younger son... In the prodigal story, he has to let go of his old story. He had to trust who the father was and what the father said about him. You have to trust who the father is and what he has said about himself and you. And then go forward as sons and daughters of Yahweh. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. This is the good news about Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Go live in it.